I'm excited about the word of God that he put on my heart. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. I've got so many things that I want to share. I'm excited about next week's message. You're ready. Next week, I think I'm going to preach a message called fight fatigued. Anybody fatigued from the fight? Right? Tune in for that. But today I got a good message for you. Luke chapter number 10, verse number 25. It says, and behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested him saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, what is written in the law? What is your reading of it? It's a good idea to, to give somebody a chance to explain what they mean before you conclude that they mean what they don't mean, right? What, what is your reading of it? So he answered and said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Do we love our neighbors as much as we love our God? Because that's, that's really what that says, right? As passionate as we are about our, our love for God, we should be as passionate about our love for one another. And he said to him, you have answered rightly, do this and you will live. But he, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? And remember, it was kind of like, and Jesus, now who is my neighbor? Then Jesus answered and said, a certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a certain priest came down that road. Oh, happy day. The priest is going to help. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Likewise, a Levite, a religious person, when he arrived at the place, came and looked. Oh, happy day. He's going to help. But passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, oh, he ain't going to help. He's going to walk by. He's going to kick him when he's down. And a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he, of all people, had compassion on him. So he went to him and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. He set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. How many of you know that God wants us to be wound healers? Not wound inflictors, right? Wound healers. On the next day, when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and he said to him, take care of him. And whatever more you spend when I come again, I will repay you. So which of these do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, this is the, the lawyer. He was like, he had Fonzie disease at that moment. You know, Fonzie could never say sorry. He was like, he couldn't say Samaritan. So he said, the one who showed him mercy. Then Jesus said to him, go and do likewise. For me, Father's Day is not a day, it's, it's a weekend. My wife and my, my son told me this morning, he said, Dad, don't be annoying about Father's Day. I said, what do you mean don't be annoying about Father's Day? They're like, you know, every Father's Day, you use the same jokes all the time. Can I have a Father's Day fork? Can I have a Father's Day cup of coffee? Can I, can I have a Father's Day blanket? Can I have a Father's Day this and a Father's Day? What's wrong with that? We got, we got to make them work on Father's Day. They said, what do you want for Father's Day? I said, I want to sit in the lawn chair this Father's Day, and I want to point out all the things that need to be done around the house and watch everybody do it. That's what I want for Father's Day. I mean, and they're like, oh, come on, you see? And I'm like, what's wrong with that? That would be a good Father's Day present. It's, it's not a day. It's, it's, it's a, an experience. And, and I felt the Lord, um, leading me to return to the story of the Good Samaritan as we began to examine it last week because despite the media narrative, at the heart of our nation's struggle right now is something that Jesus taught us over 2,000 years ago. 
And that is treating each other like we would want others to treat us. His words, to be exact, are love your neighbor as yourself. So today on this Father's Day weekend, I thought we'd explore the text by doing to God the same things that kids do to God or kids do to their parents. What do they do? They ask them a million questions. Anybody ever been asked a million questions by their kids? Why and what and how and this and that and the other thing? Because that's how kids learn. They ask all sorts of things. Do I have to go to bed now? Yes. Why do things cost money? Because they do. What does fill in the blank mean? And why can't I say it? They never say that to you. Why do people do bad things? Uh, will you die? Why don't I have a brother or a sister? Do I really have to go to school? Is Santa real? Where do babies come from? And how did the baby get in your belly right now? Why is your tummy so big? Why is it that you have a beard underneath your arm? Kids, just ask a million and one questions. And this is for real. Matter of fact, the average kid asks 73 questions a day. 73 questions a day. I think my staff are a bunch of kids because they ask that many questions. Anyway, this is the way it is. And so... I'm calling this message in honor of the way that kids learn from their dads. I'm calling this message who, what, where, when, how, and why, but not necessarily in that order. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, would you minister by your grace, by your power, by the anointing of your Holy Spirit? Would you make the word of God relevant, real, and would you cause it to be transformative in both our hearts and our minds and then also in our actions one toward another? In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said... Amen. I found an interesting article on the internet entitled, If Your Kids Keep Asking Why, Give Them the Answer. Right? Which can be tired because you don't want to say, because I said so! Right? Keep giving them the answer. Um, the article says, your kids' constant questions might be annoying, but they offer a unique chance to shape their developing brains by paying attention to this simple, sometimes annoying phenomenon. Parents may be able to help shape their child's development and better set them up for long-term success. Um, a unique 30-year project called the Fullerton Longitudinal Study found that independent of IQ, kids who were especially curious and enjoyed learning scored higher on standardized tests, were more likely to stay in school, were more likely to graduate school than their less curious peers. Um, It goes on to say parents can easily influence their child's love for learning, which for many kids is just as important to success as genetic or teacher, genetics or teachers. The most important thing it says that parents can do to foster that love is to answer the question in a way that leaves a child feeling satisfied and motivated to ask more questions. Before the 2000s, scientists thought that asking questions was a strategy for kids to get attention, that that's the reason why they do it. And we all know that science can change from moment to moment because the science at the beginning of COVID was different than the science is right this minute. So science changed, and no longer do they think that it is their strategy for getting attention, although kids kids come up with some unique strategies, don't they? They, they figure it out. They said it's no longer about getting attention. There was a paper uh, in the developmental review that examined the whole body of literature about question asking in childhood, and it turned this idea on its head. It suggested that kids are genuinely seeking information, especially if they aren't confident in their own knowledge. In other words, kids' seemingly inane and insane questions are used to learn, especially when they notice something that doesn't fit their 
experience. And so today what I wanted to do is I wanted to grill Jesus. I wanted to go into the story of the Good Samaritan. And I want us to ask Jesus this series of questions and see what it would speak to us about one of, if not the most important topic of our day and age right now. And that is how we treat one another. The first question, and we saw this last week, this is just a little review, the overarching question. The big question is the who question. It's the who is my neighbor? And we found out this lawyer or this Pharisee, this expert in the law, asked Jesus this question, not because he really wanted an answer, not because he was looking to learn, but he was trying to trap Jesus. He hated Jesus, or he hated who Jesus was being neighborly to. And by the way, being neighborly simply means treating other people as we want them to treat us. Not treating other people as they treat you, but treating other people as you would like them to treat you. That's the golden rule. And sadly, so many of us have our own versions of the golden rule. We have manipulated the golden rule. We have tried to put loopholes in the golden rule. This little girl named Darla, she had a conversation with God one day. She said, uh, God, do you really mean do unto others as they do unto you? Because if you do, I'm really going to get my brother. And it's funny when we hear it from a little kid. But we have our own versions of the golden rule, don't we? Do unto others whatever you want to do if you think you're justified. Do unto others without showing any mercy or grace. Do unto others harshly or critically if their political view doesn't conform to yours. Do unto others without regard to their humanity, their family, their personal property, or their individual character. Do unto others based on the color of their skin or the uniform they wear. Do unto others based on how you feel or what you feel they deserve or don't deserve. This was really the heart of the issue of the story and what the conversation between Jesus and the lawyer is all about. The lawyer didn't like who Jesus was being neighborly to. He didn't like the fact that Jesus was treating these people not as they deserved to be treated, but the way that Jesus would want people to treat him. Matter of fact, there is a scripture that talks about how we treat others reflecting on how we treat Jesus himself. Do you remember? I was in prison. You came and visited me. I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty. You gave me something to drink. I was sick and you visited me. Right? The way we treat others is a reflection of how we think God ought to be treated. Moreover, it is really an outgrowth of how we feel God has treated us. And if most of us realize that God didn't ever treat us how we deserve to be treated, but God has always treated us better than we deserve to be treated, that would translate into the way that we treat other people. And this lawyer didn't like who Jesus was being neighborly to. He was treating sinners and prostitutes and tax collectors and drunks and lepers and Samaritans and Gentiles and even criminals neighborly. You say, what do you mean even criminals? Remember the thief on the cross? How did he treat him? Just like he treats every single one of us. And so this guy was going to set Jesus straight by reminding him who his neighbor truly was and is and therefore who Jesus should and shouldn't be neighborly toward. And Jesus tells him a story whose point is everyone 
part of the human race, regardless of religion, ethnicity, political affiliation, voting record, ignorance or understanding, uniform or street clothes, privilege or lack thereof, is our neighbor and should be treated as we would want them to treat us in the exact same circumstances. So let me ask you a question. When, when we do something wrong, do we want people to throw the book at us? Or do we want people to treat us with dignity and respect and all those kind of things? When, when, when we associate with something that somebody doesn't like and, and we realize, well, maybe we shouldn't. Do we want people to criticize us and, and, and label us? And all? No, we want to treat people the way that we want to be treated. Jesus' point is no loopholes, zero. Yeah, but, 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 but. Nope, that's get your butt out of the way. That's the problem with the church. The church has got their big butt in the way too much. The world has got their big butt in the way too much. Get your butt out the way. There is no loophole. And so the next time you are ready to go at somebody, you know what you need to think in your heart? You need to think, that's my neighbor. And you know what you need to do? Maybe start the conversation just to remind yourself, just to keep yourself in check. Start the conversation when you approach somebody or a situation that you don't like with, hello, neighbor. Pull a Mr. Rogers on him. But the second question that Jesus speaks to us is when, as in when truth comes in an unconventional package. In the story, Jesus wraps the truth he is trying to share with a Jew in a Samaritan package. Jesus is savage. By now, you who have been watching for the last few weeks understand that Jews hated Samaritans not disliked, not weren't fond of, not disagreed with amiably, but hated. They thought they were dirty, disgusting, dishonorable, and disgraceful. But Jesus wraps the truth of how to treat one another in this unconventional package of a good Samaritan. He makes the hated the hero. Watch out what you label the wrong way because God may use it to teach you the right way. And all throughout scripture, God has placed truth in unconventional packages. John the Baptist appeared to be crazy, hanging out in the wilderness, eating bugs, but baptizing and sharing the truth. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Joseph, a prisoner of Egypt, was brought to Pharaoh with the truth of Pharaoh's dream about how to make it through a famine and find themselves with abundance. A prisoner! was the one who had that truth. David, a shepherd boy, stood before a fear-stricken nation, and he said, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Truth in an unconventional package. Moses, a fugitive on the run, a murderer, stood before the most powerful man in the land and said, God said, let my people go. Truth in an unconventional package. Esther, an orphaned slave girl, stood before a king and Stood in a gap for her people truth in an unconventional package. A prostitute with an alabaster box carried truth on how to treat the Messiah to the religious elite of her day who are dishonoring him. An ass carried truth to a stubborn prophet by the name of Balaam. God will use crazy things to carry truth to our hearts. Over 2,000 years ago, the greatest unconventional 
packaging carried truth. He was a carpenter. He was raised in Nazareth. His parents were common folk. He was born in a stable. But yet he, he carried the greatest truth of all time. When he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man can come to the Father except through me. These are all examples of how truth came in an unconventional package that was rejected by society, religion, and was commonly considered wrong. Our founding fathers carried the truth of the gospel and the ideals of our great nation in a package that included slavery. Early Christianity carried a Bible in one hand and a sword in the other. They ran the risk of discrediting the truth they carried by the actions and beliefs that were ungodly and unbiblical. But nevertheless, they carried truth that transcended the package that it traveled in. I just want to prick your mind a little bit. I want to get you to think, can truth come in a package that is not completely correct? You are experiencing truth right now coming through a package that is not completely correct. This package that we call Pastor Frank is not always right, doesn't always have it all together, is not flawless, doesn't, is not somebody who never makes mistakes, yet there are truths that come from this package. And in the same way, we must realize that that, that is some of the issue that we are struggling with right now. Can I, can I be real for a moment? Can I ask and answer a question that many are afraid to ask, but that are asking right now? That many who privately have asked me. And here's the question. How can we support the statement Black Lives Matter when the package that it emerged from stands for so much that is biblically off base? To be clear, a lot of people don't associate the words Black Lives Matter with the organization where those words came from. For a lot of people, many people who are in this uh, space right now where we are trying to figure out how to heal the racial tensions and the injustices and all of that. Many don't equate one with the other. Nevertheless, to answer the question many are asking, as believers, we cannot support much of what is associated with the Black Lives Matter organization. As believers, we cannot support tearing down what God said is the biblical foundation of the family. As believers, we cannot support all people being painted, all police being painted with the broad brush of being racist or corrupt. As believers, we cannot support lawlessness that supports violence or destruction. As believers, we cannot support places like CHOP in Seattle who have prominently displayed the statement, no churches in the wild. But as believers, we can and should support the truth that black lives matter because it is a call to correct the systemic injustice that has been perpetrated throughout our nation's history just as some wrong and some evil does not negate the truth contained within the ideals of our nation or the framework of our constitution or the foundations of our faith neither does the errors of any institution or organization negate the truths that it carries My preference would be that the slogan Black Lives Matter would have been coined by the church or started by our commitment to do justice, but it did not because justice has not been as much of a care for the church as it was and is for Christ. 
And so oftentimes, truth will come in unconventional packages, but it is nevertheless still truth. I do believe we always, as a body of believers, have a responsibility to reclaim truth. The hymns we sang started as bar songs, but nobody said, oh, don't bring them into the church. Actually, some did. Those were the religiously ignorant at the time. But we brought them into the church, and we reclaimed them, and we repurposed them, and we put them in a package that would give glory and give honor to God. Here's what we need to understand. We don't always have to throw the baby out with the bathwater. We don't always have to choose all right or all wrong. We don't always have to ignore the good when it is packaged in imperfection. We don't have to choose between Black Lives Matter and police officers. We don't have to choose between equal justice for all and lawlessness. We can choose to support what is right and good and attempts to fix and correct and rebuild what is broken do not let the brokenness around you force you into thinking that there is only a binary choice realize there is a better choice and that is to stand for and work for justice and righteousness they are not mutually exclusive but mutually beneficial perhaps that is why the how to treat others truth was packaged in a Samaritan. The third question. Why is just as important as what? Why is just as important as what? Notice what Jesus says. A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, the road from Jerusalem to Jericho was a very well-known road in Bible times. It was about 17 miles long. It descended about 3,000, 3,300 feet. It was steep and rocky. The road was narrow. It was a great spot for robbers and thieves to hide out in waiting. So it was kind of a foolish place for a person to travel all by themselves Matter of fact, so many people got killed or mugged on that road that it is to this day known as the road or the way of blood. But in the story, the man mugged travels it anyway, and he is left for dead. So the lawyer that Jesus is telling the story to and the crowd listening is thinking to themselves, this was a stupid dude. This was a dude that should have known... That if he made that choice to travel that road, that he was going to have that happen to him. To the listener, it was the victim's fault that this happened to him. They shouldn't have done X, Y, and Z. They should have made better choices. It is their fault. But why did Jesus put this detail in the story? Why that road? Why this type of tension? Why this intentional thought-provoking tension? I think Jesus was trying to tell us something. That if we are going to treat our neighbor as ourselves, the why question is just as important as the what question. It's not just what they did. It's not just what happened. It's not just what was the outcome. It is why did it happen? 
What is the byproduct? Why is the issue? What can only elicit a strong reaction, but why can temper how we respond? In other words, the heart of treating somebody neighborly is not looking to immediately throw the book at somebody, not automatically assuming the worst about somebody, but to consider the circumstances and come to a conclusion that is steeped in mercy and grace. Jesus is saying in this story, You have prejudiced how the person should be treated by what they did. Because in your mind, they made a foolish choice. They don't deserve grace and mercy. But that is not treating somebody neighborly. Our heart toward one another should always be to seek to understand. Our heart toward one another should always be to try to walk in somebody else's shoes. Our heart toward one another should always be to try to see things through their eyes and experiences. And always think, but for the grace of God, there go I. This applies to everyone in all situations, whether we agree with them or disagree with them. Asking why is not an excuse to do whatever, but rather is an exercise that helps us to treat one another better than we think that we deserve. I don't know about you, but I'm sure glad God considers my why. I don't know about you, but I'm sure glad that that. God looks at what led to what I've become to help me become what he has designed me to be. I'm sure glad that God doesn't treat me like I deserve, but instead grants me his grace and his mercy that I don't deserve. I'm sure glad that God protects us from those that want to throw stones at us and lifts us up and still tells us to go and sin no more like he did with the woman caught in adultery. I'm sure glad that God says we are chosen vessels even after we murder a lot of people like the apostle Paul. I'm sure glad God doesn't disqualify us from our destiny even after we've made bad decisions like Moses. I'm sure glad God considers the circumstances, the pressures, and all of what went into our humanity that causes us to make the decisions that we sometimes make. I'm sure glad that God, when we shrink back in our faith because of fear, doesn't write us off but still uses us to be the rock of the church. I don't know about you, but I'm glad God... God considers my why. See, we need to ask another question. Not just what. That's okay. What matters? We cannot dismiss what with why, but we can understand what better when we're willing to ask why. Number four. Fourth question, how can I be part of the solution? Simple answer, be a good Samaritan. Be a, see, I wish you had Hebrew biblical ears when I say be a good Samaritan. Because when you heard, hear that, if you had biblical Hebrew ears, it would like, it would be like me saying jumbo shrimp. Because shrimp are small and jumbo is big. My wife and I passed this restaurant last night. And we remember the time when we first went there. It was a long time ago. It was when we first kind of moved into Connecticut. And they had the, the biggest shrimp in all the world. They were called colossal shrimp. They were like the size of lobster tails. They were huge. And we thought about that. And I thought to myself, giant shrimp. What an oxymoron. 
good Samaritan. To the biblical mind, oxymoron, how could a Samaritan been good? I love the fact that Jesus uses this title for the hated in the story. What is he saying? Be the antithesis of what society and culture has defined and determined that you should be. Don't, don't be what they expect you to be. Don't be what they have labeled you to be. Be the antithesis of that. Be good when others do evil. Do right when others do wrong. Bless when others curse. Take the high road when others take the, the low road. Be the oxymoron and not just a moron. I worked on that all. That was a, that was a big line right there. Be the oxymoron and not just a moron. Right now, we are talking about pulling off this event to bring the police and the community together. Why? Oxymoron. Nobody wants to do that right now. Nobody wants to bridge the gap. Instead, we want to fuel the division. But we're going to be the good Samaritan. Isn't that what Jesus is telling us in the story? He says, verse number, look at it again. Verse number 36. So which of these... Three, do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, he who showed mercy on him. Then Jesus said, go and do likewise. Go and show someone kindness. Go and be good to somebody who you don't think deserves it. Go and be nice to somebody who you don't agree with. Go and love somebody you think is unlovable. There there was a young man I met recently. I wasn't planning on saying this, but I just feel led. Uh, I met him at the protest that I was asked to pray at. And Pastor Brandon and I went to, and it was young, and I only say this so you can get context. He was a love, young African-American man, and um, he, he was so nice. And when the police chief was there, he went right over to the police chief, and he was having a great conversation with the police chief. And, and I thought, man, this, this guy's kind of unique. And he wrote this book, and this book was about his brother who got shot years and years ago by a police officer in New Milford. But the book is all about how not to hate it's all about how to heal the divisions and the divides. And he said, people ask him all the time, how come you're not angry? And, and he was so profound in, in what he said. But I looked at him and I thought back at, about him and I thought, good Samaritan. Somebody who is, who is doing the opposite of what society and culture would say, how we should react in times like this in order to truly heal what we all want healed in our hearts. MLK said this, love is the only power that can transform an enemy into a friend. Love is the only power. Hmm. Sounds a lot like somebody that that I know. His name is Jesus. Matthew chapter 5, verse 43, you have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. America, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. You've heard that. But I say, but but I have wisdom that is the opposite of that. Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. That you may be the sons of your father in heaven. For he makes his son rise on the evil and the good. And sends rain on the just and the unjust. In other words, God treats even the people who don't deserve it with his goodness. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? 
Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brother only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors, basically the tax collectors with the scum of the earth. You don't, don't the tax you, you're operating in the same class as tax collectors when you do this. Therefore, you shall be perfect, not, not without fault, but, but Christ-like, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. Nelson Mandela said this, no one is born hating another person because of the color of his skin or his background or his religion. People must learn to hate. And if we learn to hate, then we can be taught to love. For love comes more naturally to the human heart than its opposites. Two great men, MLK, Nelson Mandela, echoing the sentiments of the greatest man that ever lived, Jesus Christ. How can we be part of the solution? Be a good Samaritan. Question number five. What did Jesus do? I love this question. It's so simple but so profound. You know what the definition of brilliance is, Pastor Brandon? It's the ability to ascertain the obvious. So simple but so profound. What did, not what would Jesus do? Because that's a cool question. I understand what people mean by that. But that's speculation. You know, you just do whatever you want to do and then you throw, well, what would Jesus do on it? It's like, well, I'm, I'm, I'm now putting my sanction on it because I'm throwing that. I know Jesus would have done this as well. So it's not what would Jesus do. It's what did Jesus do? He is that good Samaritan in the story. He refused to walk by our pain. He refused to leave us lying there in our sin. He refused to let us die in our fallen condition. He had to intervene. He was compelled to help. He was motivated to care. He paid our expense with his own blood. He equipped us with the Holy Spirit. That was as the good Samaritan. But as a man who walked this earth, he stood for justice. He respected authority. He loved his enemies. He gave people second chances. He healed people who were hurting. He sacrificed for others. He empathized and enlightened. He was humble yet strong. He suffered wrong so other people's people could receive what was right. He forgave when he was wrong. He helped the weak. He spoke truth to power. He told Peter to put away his sword. He put the ear back on his enemy. He made his life about others. He lifted the low and reached out to the high. He walked with integrity. He rejected no one and he gave his life for everyone. What would Jesus do? He is our example. He's the one who we should be committed to following and mimicking. His wisdom is the wisdom we should be speaking. His message is the message that we ought to be shouting from the mountaintops. His light is the light that should be shining through us. His gospel is the narrative we should be following. His grace and mercy is what we should be passing on to one another. His banner is the emblem that we should pledge our allegiance to. His legacy is the one that we should pass on. His yoke is the yoke we should carry. And his name is the name we ought to be shouting. Jesus. Jesus, what did Jesus do? Final question. It's, 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 it's amazing what we learn when we ask the right questions. Somebody once told me when somebody smarter than you is in the room, just ask the right questions. Do a lot of listening and not a lot of talking. The final question, the where. Where's God in all this? 
Have you ever, have you ever looked around? Has, has life ever gotten really, really chaotic and crazy and bizarre to the point where you looked around, oh, where, where is God? There are times when you, when you look around and, man, it can, it can just cause your faith to sink in a moment. I want to close with this quote from C.S. Lewis. And the band is going to get ready to minister a song that poor Blake didn't even know existed until, until I brought it to his attention. This younger generation, they need us. I said, this younger generation, they need us. If we leave them to their own devices, we're going to be in trouble. They need us. They need us. C.S. Lewis said, God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. In all the chaos and confusion right now, don't miss the voice of God. He's shouting through the pain. You can't do this without me. You need me right now. You need me in this moment. You need me at this pivotal time in history. You have an opportunity to to make this truly a more perfect union. You have an opportunity to go forward, to build upon the bad, to build upon the good and correct the bad. You need me in this moment. Don't don't leave me out of this moment. Don't stand by no churches in the wild. Don't 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 exclude me from the decision making process. If there was ever a time where we could see that our ways are not God's ways and our thoughts are not God's thoughts, it's now. The old song should be the cry of our heart. I need thee. Oh, I need thee. Every hour, I need thee. Oh, bless me now, my Savior. I come to thee. Would you let this anthem reign in your soul as they minister?
That's our cry. That should be our cry. Every person, red and yellow, black and white, precious in the sight, we all need them. President, need them. Congress, need them. Police officers, need them. America, needs them. See, that's what we need right now. Because when we call for his help, then he guides our steps and the things that we're a part on, we seem to come to a place where instead of seeing it from our perspective, we, we catch his perspective. And he's for all of the ideals that we are fighting for and fighting with one another with. He can show us how to come to that place. We need him. Come on, one more time, one more time. This is a moment. Sing it. Sing it with the worship team. I need Before you go, I know there are some of you who are tuning in. You need them. You need them in a personal situation. In the midst of all this, we forget that some people are still struggling with their health. You need them. In your family, you need them. Most of all, in your soul, you need them. If you're watching right now and you need Jesus, you need him to forgive you of your sins. You need him to make you right with our Heavenly Father. You need to know that when you leave this earth, Heaven will be your eternal home. I want to lead you in a prayer. Would you say this with me? Heavenly Father, today I repent of my sins. I make Jesus my Lord and Savior, and I'll never be the same in Jesus' name. If you prayed that simple prayer, God heard the cry of your heart. See, that's how easy it is to get God to come to our rescue. Just call out to him. If my people who are called by my name, just call out to him. Invite him. He wants to help. He wants to be included. You know, the person that has been the most discriminated against, the most ostracized in our world is the one who created our world. And the reason why we have the problems in our world that we have in our world is because we haven't invited him to be at the helm. We've pretended to. We used him to purport our broken agendas. But if we truly invite him and let him lead, we would realize that in Christ, there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither male nor female. But we're all one in him. That's the gospel. Heaven's going to be a great place around the throne. The Bible says 
are multitudes of people which no man can number from every nation, tribe, kindred, tongue, and people. Let's invite God back. Thanks so much for watching, but don't just stop there. Click the Watch Live button in the description below to join us for Faith Church Online every Sunday morning. And while you're there, you can set a reminder to come back Sundays at 9 and 11. If you'd also like to learn more about getting involved here at Faith Church, you can click the Connect button. And be sure to subscribe to this channel so that you don't miss a single video and maybe even share it with a friend. Thank you again for watching. And as always, remember, with Jesus, you are destined to win.